0: So, uh, we all know someone who, when presented with two possible paths forward, will choose the path of least resistance. Uh, Not all the time, but occasionally, my beloved son uh, can show such tendencies. When he first started in daycare, uh, a few months in, we had a call with his teacher to check his progress, Uh, and she was She was super effusive in her praise of him, what a lovely and engaging child he was and how polite he was. But then when we got to his physical development, she expressed that she had some serious concerns. That when he fell down to the ground, he seemed physically unable to pick himself up again. And uh, when he wanted to go down the slide, which is about two feet high, that he couldn't do it without holding hands. (coughs) That's interesting, I responded because I've just come from the playground, <laughs> and the slide there is six feet high, <laughs> and he bounced back up off the floor like a basketball. Uh, for, for the, the truth of that situation was that he didn't need her help at all, but he had it figured out. Why exert the energy to do something for yourself when you can convince someone else that you need them to do it for you? And we all know that there are people who more habitually We'll choose what is easy over what is right, but if we ever sit down and really think about it, we'll realize that all of our lives are littered with moments where we had those two choices and we decided to go with what was easy. Today's snapshot from the life of Amos is the story of the priest at Bethel who had a choice between what was easy and what was right, and he chose what was easy. And from there, we're going to talk about our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who always chose what was right over what was easy. And by his Holy Spirit in us, enables us to begin to do the same. So let's get started looking a little bit at the context of Amos. Uh, Probably around mid-8th century BC, like 760, 750 uh, it tells us that it's during the reign of Uzziah in Judah and Jeroboam II in Israel, uh, just before around the same time as Isaiah. Um, Amos lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, he, As he said himself, he wasn't a prophet. He wasn't the son of a prophet. It wasn't a family business. Uh, he was a sheep herder, and he tended sycamore trees. But he heard a call from the Lord to go and prophesy in the northern kingdom despite the fact that he himself was from the southern. In the northern kingdom, Jeroboam II was ruling, and it was prosperous and peaceful. He was a successful king in a worldly sense, extending their borders, negotiating peace. There was wealth in the land. But under the surface, there was trouble brewing. Syncretism and idolatry were being practiced in the temple at Bethel and tolerated by the priests there, Uh, who was cozy with the king. They were worshiping God, but their worship was polluted with idolatry, golden calves even being set up in the temple, mixing in practices from other religions and worshiping false gods. Outside the temple, things were not a whole lot better. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. In fact, there were practices in place which enabled the rich to get richer off the backs of the poor. Uh, There was, for example, uh, Amos actually gives us a lot of specific examples of this. Um, When someone had been fined, uh, their garments could be taken from them or or their wine, but was to be returned at the end of the day. Uh, But it wasn't being returned. So the poorest people in the land were being left uh, shivering in their beds at night without the garments they needed. And the wine that had been confiscated was being drunk in the temple itself by the wealthy. Uh, with gleaning, instead of allowing the needy to glean, uh, gathering what was dropped uh, behind those doing the harvest, uh, the landowners were gathering everything themselves and selling it at extortionate prices, gouging the poorest people in the land. Merchants were using weighted scales to allow themselves to dramatically overcharge needy people who had no choice but to pay. And the judges and courts that were supposed to uphold justice are allowing it to be withheld From the poor for the advantage of the wealthy. Corruption for the sake of their own gain was rampant among landowners and merchants regardless of the fact that it had life-altering consequences for the poor. Throughout his prophecy Amos has a keen concern for all of these issues, the fate of the poor and the idolatry and syncretism that he saw. He prophesied the exile of the northern kingdom during a time of peace and security. And a mere 40 years later, it would indeed happen at the hand of the Assyrians. So in chapter 7 specifically, uh, Amos has previous chapters. He's spoken to the people in general. Uh, He's spoken specifically to the wealthy. But in chapter 7, he leaves us in no doubt as to who he is addressing because he preaches these oracles on the grounds of the temple itself at Bethel. Uh, This was the center of worship in the northern kingdom at this time. So it leaves you in no doubt that he wants the king and the priest and the leaders of the land to hear this. He's given a vision of locusts eating up uh, the crop of the land, and he asks God to relent, which God does. And then he has a further vision of a fire destroying the land, and he asks God to relent, so God does. And then he has a final vision of God measuring people using a plumb line, which, point of fact, until I looked it up, I had no idea what a plumb line was. Uh, We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, (laughs) But he's dividing the people of the land and uh, laying waste to the high places and sanctuaries, bringing a sword against the king's house. And this time Amos does not appeal and God does not relent. The priest, uh, Amaziah, reports to the king the words of Amos and then he urges Amos to leave and essentially go back to Judah and prophesy for a living down there because we really don't want to hear it. Uh, Amos responds that he's not doing this for a living. His job is to herd sheep. He's doing this because God told him to. And because Amaziah has tried to silence the word of the Lord from going forth for the sake of his own benefit, he's told that he and his family will now be caught up in the judgment that is to come. So I want to take a closer look at a couple of the key details in this chapter and try to draw out what is at the heart of it. As I mentioned, Amos is set up on the grounds of the temple, uh, the center of worship and is clearly targeting the nation's leaders. Uh, Look specifically at verse 13, Amos is warned, never again prophesy at Bethel for it is the king's sanctuary. The trouble is this wasn't news to Amos, that's specifically why he was there. He was there because it is the king's sanctuary and the consequences in the third oracle that God uh, warns the people of the high places and the sanctuaries are being torn down and destroyed and a sword is being brought against the king's house. All of this adds to the clear truth that this message is for the leaders of the land. So in the final vision it says God is measuring people using a plumb line. So once I looked it up I realized that a plumb line is a way of measuring something uh, to see if it's straight or if it's crooked. Uh, For example, if you're painting, you could use it to make sure you're painting in straight lines. So in this context, it can be explained as an objective moral standard to which they must conform. They're going to be measured by this standard, and they will either be found to be straight or to be crooked. God has passed over previous judgments at the prophet's request, but the idolatry, the syncretism, and the injustice have persisted. So God is now coming with an objective standard by which they will stand or fall. No more polluted syncretism. No more claims of devotion while overlooking the suffering of the poor. Judgment is coming for those that don't measure up to this standard. So if we look at how Amaziah responds, the very first thing he does is essentially he tattles, right? He sends word to the king, uh, and then he comes right outside and... uh, basically tells Amos to flee. Uh, And this reaction tells you he doesn't actually really care if Amos is a legitimate prophet or not. He's not hanging around to find out. He hears what Amos is saying. He immediately sends word to the king that Amos is conspiring against him. And then he comes out and tells Amos to get out. He's not much concerned if the word that Amos is bringing is the word of the Lord. He assumes that Amos is making money out of this, I guess because he thinks, what other reason would there be to do something like this? This is a crazy thing to do. The only motivation could be money. Why why is he reacting this way? He's a priest. He's supposed to be leading the people in worship. Why is he reacting this way? Well, the wealthy in the country, at least, are prospering. The king has gained territory. He's negotiated peace. The syncretism and idolatry are filling the temple coffers, and the unjust judgments rendered in the court are making the rich richer. Everyone is comfortable and cozy the way things are. Amaziah doesn't want to risk a schism with the king. He stands to benefit by keeping the king on side, being cozy with him, and prosper economically from the polluted worship. He gets all of this if he just remains loyal to Jeroboam. All he has to do to achieve this is nothing. Just do nothing. However, if he were to hear Amos out, accept the word of God, it would mean he had to cleanse the worship of syncretism and idolatry. It would mean that he had to challenge the abuses of the poor that were happening, that he would likely fall out with the king, lose some income, endanger his career, and maybe even his own safety. So the fundamental reality here is that he is choosing what is easy over what is right. Amos makes the point himself that he's not doing this for economic gain. He's a sheep herder. He's just doing this because God told him to. And so, in that sense, he doesn't really care if the priest doesn't like it. He doesn't really care if the king is on his way to arrest him, because God is on his way with a plumb line to measure whether they are straight or crooked. Amaziah has chosen power and prosperity over justice for the vulnerable and purity of worship. So, now he and his family are going to be caught up in the judgment that's coming. So reading these stories thousands of years later and with hindsight, we can often sit ourselves in seats of judgment over the people that we're reading about and and ask ourselves, what on earth was he thinking? What a ridiculous choice. How did he not see the end consequences of that choice? But if we sit quiet and look at our own lives, we know that there have been times when we have made similar choices. Because sin has a way of convincing you that embracing it is the fastest and easiest way to get to what you want. If you do what's easy, you suffer less and you benefit more. If you do what's right, you suffer more and you benefit less. It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. If I were to ask my mother for a cookie before dinner, she might say no. Or she might tell me I had to eat broccoli first. But if I just take it, then I get what I want without any complications. It's easier to lie and to hide what you've done than to own your mistakes and speak the truth. It's easier to stay quiet and watch the other kid on the playground get victimized or even to join in with what's happening than it is to stand up for them and maybe end up in the firing line. It's easier to spend your money in ways that fluff only your own pillow than to live more frugally and give sacrificially to those who have less. Uh, I'm going to ask you guys a question at this point. Do we have anyone whose children are obsessed with Paw Patrol in the room? Any Paw Patrol fans? Anyone that's watched Paw Patrol? You guys haven't suffered as much as I have on the whole, but we do have a couple. <laughs> There's a, the Paw Patrol is set in a lovely little town that has a lovely little mayor who always tries to, to help people in the town, but in the next town over, uh, Foggy Bottom, They have a mayor called Mayor Humdinger and Mayor Humdinger is driven by a great desire for his town to be the best town. But in going about achieving that goal, he has two choices. He could do this the right way, which is work really hard to fix the issues in your town, or he could do it the easy way, which is to run on over to the next town over and steal their tulips so his garden looks nicer. Uh, Mayor Humdinger consistently tries to choose the easy way and then ends up coming unstuck and has to be saved by the Paw Patrol. Uh, that's just about every episode that's ever been written, so now you don't have to watch it. <laughs> when I was trying to think about examples of choosing what was easy over what was right, I probably mistakenly called my mother. And I said, Hey, mum, can you think of any examples of when I chose what was easy over what was right? No. No, you always made good choices, right? Well, there was this one time. uh, Well, Michael, every time I asked you to clean your bedroom, you just shoved everything under the bed. Every time I asked you to do your homework, you spent five minutes scribbling nonsense and then went back to playing video games. Uh, And when she got going, it wasn't just me she was calling out. She started calling out my siblings. (laughs) My, My brother had this... Horrible habit of finding the weirdest, grossest, creepiest pets to bring home. Most of which were capable of licking their own eyeballs. (laughs) And the one thing he wanted the most in the world was a giant African land snail. But my mom had a horror of anything that was slimy. Um, So there was a clear boundary. Look, she let him get the snakes, she let him get all kinds of lizards. Don't get anything slimy at least slimier. Uh, so the, the right thing to do would have been to search for pets that aren't slimy. The easy thing to do was to get a tiny baby land snail and hide it in his bedroom. Unfortunately, they don't stay teeny tiny. They get bigger. And when they're finished, they're bigger than a grown man's fist. And then they're harder to hide. My mom's wrath initially was great. Uh, But in fairness to her, so too was her grace when a few weeks later, my brother went on vacation and asked her to look after it while he was away. But my my personal favorite example of this, unfortunately I am the subject of, uh, was when I was trying to ingratiate myself with a particular social group at school. And this group of individuals, their favorite thing to do during recess was to have a massive food fight with the kids from the grade below Now, mostly it was harmless, mostly it was, you know, sandwiches and things like that, but it did get significantly worse when the apples would come out and somebody would be sent to the school nurse. (laughs) So I wanted to get involved in this community. The right thing to do would have been to try to make friends with them in ways that did not lead to injury for innocent bystanders. Or, if that wasn't possible, to make friends with people that did not enjoy injuring innocent bystanders. Uh, But that would have been harder and it would have taken longer. So what I did was I went home to my mother and I told her that I had cooking class the next day and that we were going to be baking. So I needed to bring in eggs. (laughs) When I went to school the next day, let me tell you something. I was a hero. (laughs) All of my hopes and dreams had been realized and it had been so easy, I couldn't believe my luck. I didn't really think about the the half a dozen poor souls that went home with egg yolk in their hair and on their blazers. I had what I wanted. But the interesting thing about choosing the easy way that I didn't think through, and neither did Amaziah, the priest at Bethel, is that at its heart sin is deceptive. It promises you that it will fulfill your desires with minimum effort, but it never tells you about the fallout. A teacher caught a glimpse of a kid covered in egg and brought together every poor soul who had been involved in the food fight. We all looked fixedly at our shoes and didn't make eye contact with each other as she said, okay boys, I don't care Who threw the eggs. I don't want to know who threw the eggs. The only thing I want to know is who brought them in. In the end, ironically, I didn't really end up getting closer to those guys at all. They wanted to avoid the heat that I was getting. And I got a significant amount of trouble out of it to boot. So you see, sin tells you that it can give you everything your heart desires, but it never tells you at the same time, well, it's giving you that it will take from you things that are even more important. Your friendships, your relationships, your loved ones. Amaziah found this out the hard way too. He figured if he did nothing about the idolatry and injustice, he would be wealthier for it, ingratiate himself with the king and avoid any unpleasantness. Maybe he even justified it to himself by saying that this way he could give his family a better life and not put them at risk of the king's wrath. But as usual, sin was lying to him. In seeking to avoid the wrath of the king, he incurred the wrath of the holy God for himself and his family. You see, because God's children were the poor who were shivering in their beds at night. God's children were being trampled for the cost of a pair of sandals and were being denied justice in the courts. God had also... The idolatrous and syncretistic worship that Amaziah was allowing had risen to his nostrils and revolted him. They set up golden calves in the temple itself. They engaged themselves in worship of gods to whom children were sacrificed and all manners of evil were practiced. Amaziah had allowed all this for the sake of staying on side with Jeroboam and keeping the money rolling in. But the end consequences of this choice that he incurred were worse than anything he would have faced if he had just followed God and done what was right. And isn't this sin in a nutshell? Is there anyone here who hasn't been lured in by the empty promises of sin if we'll only choose what's easy and then ended up paying a steeper cost than if we had just done what was right in the first place? Well, there actually is one who has not had that experience. Hebrews 4:14 4, and 15 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus Christ always chose what was right over what was easy. There was never a moment in his life when he was confronted with that choice and he took the easy way. Let's look at today's New Testament passage as an example. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. All the kingdoms of the earth are rightfully his. He came to destroy sin and death and Satan so that all of creation could be brought under his lordship, including all the kingdoms of the earth. In the wilderness, Satan tried to offer him an easy route to get there. If Jesus would only bow down, then all those kingdoms would be his without a fight, without the agony and suffering of the cross. In that moment, Jesus was being tempted to choose what was easy over what was right. Avoid the cross. Avoid taking the punishment for the sins of the world. Avoid humiliation, death, and disfigurement. Just bow down and you'll get what you came for. But it wasn't right. Jesus always chose what was right. And because he didn't bow down to Satan in the wilderness, instead we find him on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane with the weight of the sins of the world weighing down on him, sweating blood, surrendering to the will of his Father. Jesus saw through the false promises of sin and Satan. He knew that choosing to bow the knee to Satan and avoid the cross would mean he could never rule over the kingdoms of the earth. He saw through Satan's lies and he refused to take the easy way out. He chose the humiliation and shame of the cross. He chose to bear our sins. He chose to suffer and die. He chose to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He chose us. And Jesus stands alone as the only one who has ever refused to choose what was easy over what was right. The only one to always reject the false promises of sin. The rest of humanity through all of time have fallen for the empty promises and lies of sin and have taken the easy way. The psalmist tells us that there are none who do God good. Not even one. But that's exactly why Jesus came. He is the one who did good, the one who chose right. And because he did this, he was able to offer us a way out. Yes, Jesus took away our sins by bearing them himself as he hung on the cross. But that's not all. He took our filthy rags, but we got his righteousness. We got the blessings earned by Jesus when he chose what was right. And he took the curse due to us for choosing what was easy. When Jesus hung on the cross, God saw our sins upon him and put upon him the punishment due to us. But because he did this, now when God looks at those who follow Christ, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Us. The ones who've lied, who've stolen, who've looked for shortcuts at every turn, who put ourselves first, Ignored the plight of those less fortunate around us, treasured idols in our hearts. Now that we've given those hearts to Christ, we are covered by his righteousness and we are called children of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. But what comes next? Now that we know the promises of sin are empty and that the easy route that it offers us is usually a fast track to destruction, how do we change? How do we learn to choose what is right and reject what is easy? Even there, God has not left us alone. Jesus tells us in John 14 that he will not leave us alone, but will send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will dwell with us and in us and will teach us day by day to recognize and choose what is right. He will sanctify us, purify us, help us every day to be more like Jesus in rejecting sin and honoring our Father in heaven. So now, because of Christ, not only are we forgiven for all the times that we've chosen the easy road over the right one, but we're enabled by His Spirit to begin choosing what is right so that we can shine the light of Christ in the world around us and point more people into the loving arms of their Savior. But this is something that we have to cooperate with and participate in. And that means taking a hard look at ourselves and seeing where we've cherished idols in our hearts over and above our God and Creator, seeing where we've prioritized our own financial security and comfort over the need to challenge injustice around us, believed the lies of sin and allowed ourselves to be deceived into ignoring what we know to be right. Only you know what this looks like in your life. We all have idols, and they can be hard to see because in and of themselves they need not be bad things. Work, family, children, success, they become a problem when they become the center of our hearts and lives above God. Injustice and our culpability in it can be hard to see and easy to justify. We've all bought products from unethical companies uh, whose practices take advantage of cheap or slave labor overseas in order to put the product we want into our hands and we've all turned a blind eye to it because of the convenience that that product brings to our lives. Or perhaps we've knowingly ignored the need that is plain to see in the world around us and refused to bring our resources, finances and influence to bear on it because we're preoccupied, feathering our own nests. We've all fallen for the lies of sin. Whether it's that we're in search of intimacy and we believe the lies of sin, that we can get this, through extramarital relationships or pornography and then found ourselves feeling more alone than when we started. Or we've made a habit of lying and hiding our imperfections because we think that that's the easiest way to protect our relationships. Not knowing that in actuality the deception we choose to engage in does more to harm our relationships than the thing that we were trying to hide. Well, church, fear not. Because in Jesus Christ, all of our idols, selfish choices, sin, and moral failure have been buried for good by a risen and triumphant Savior. And God is not looking at you and holding those things against you. When God looks at you, He sees the righteousness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but God the Holy Spirit is in us even now, able to offer hope that we can reject sin and choose what is right we can reorder our priorities to put God first and to put away idols. We can make the decision to use our resources and our finances to fight the injustices that we see in the world around us. We can conquer the persistent sins that plague us and sabotage our relationships. We can do all this by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, knowing that all the times we failed are not held against us because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the one who always chose what was right over what was easy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to do what we couldn't do so that we might be offered salvation as a free gift. We pray that you'll be at work in each one of us by your Holy Spirit, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus, and enabling us to continue choosing what is right. For the sake of your kingdom and glory, in Jesus' name, amen.